Episode 21, The Fullness of Time. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and we try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is Episode 21, The Fullness of Time. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending on him. And a voice came from the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit brought him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. Now, after John was taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. This is how the writer Mark introduces Jesus in what is now known as the Gospel of Mark in the first chapter. The first thing that Mark has Jesus say is, the time is fulfilled. If you think about it, that's a really odd way to introduce him, isn't it? That's the first thing he says. In two places in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul also uses this phrase, in the fullness of time, to indicate that in some way, the time was ripe for the Messiah to arrive. By the way, I'm not actually going to get into Jesus' life in this episode. There's no way I could cover all of this stuff plus his life in 20 minutes. So this episode is going to be mostly about the historical record in which we find Jesus's life. We'll get to Jesus himself in the next episode. The historical attribution stuff about him is also super interesting to me anyway. As we mentioned last episode, the Roman Empire had already started when Jesus was born. Caesar Augustus was reigning over the empire. Herod the Great was the client king ruling over Judea though both of these things would change during Jesus' lifetime. So, who was this Jesus, and why is it important, and why is it important that he's in the historical record? Even if you are not someone who's a follower of him, you've heard of him, and you probably know the basic story of his life. He's arguably the most important figure in all of Western history. Even though he never held any political office, he never conquered any territory, he was never king, Or was he? He never wrote anything, and he lived and he died in relative obscurity with only a few small number of people who knew who he was or cared that he lived or died. This is a really interesting thing to me, that when he died, there were probably less than a hundred people who really cared about it. A hundred people. The whole Roman Empire knew that Caesar Augustus had died. But after Jesus' death, something happened something that seems incredibly unlikely considering only a hundred people cared about it. Word of his life and his death traveled across the empire and even outside the empire. And very soon, within 100 years of Jesus's death, people all across the Roman empire had heard his story and many of them had become followers of Jesus. What the heck happened? Jesus's earliest followers did not try to start a new religion. That wasn't their goal. That wasn't their idea. That wasn't what they were talking about. They just simply claimed that Jesus had risen from the dead and that his death meant 
that all of our sins were forgiven and that we could now have eternal life. It was a simple but kind of preposterous claim. But that was their claim. They didn't present Jesus as a great teacher or a prophet or a religious founder. They presented him as having died and rose again and that now he was the king of heaven and that his death and resurrection proved that and that opened the doors to heaven for all the rest of us. But we're we're getting ahead of ourselves a little here again. We're talking about what happened after his death and we haven't even talked about his life yet. No one is exactly sure when Jesus was born. The Bible does not specify the year nor the season, though Luke does give us this in in chapter 2 of the book that's called the Gospel of Luke. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. So right there, we've got Caesar Augustus on the throne in Rome, right? So this is setting the stage for this. Going on in Luke, he says, this was the first census that was taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and all the people were on their way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and of the family of David, in order to register, along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths, and she laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. That's how Luke, the writer, introduces Jesus in what is now known as the Gospel of Luke in the second chapter there. So we know he was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus at the time of one of the Roman censuses, the first census, according to this, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Now, Syria was a Roman province, so it had a governor or a proconsul. Judah, instead, though, was a vassal state. It was a separate kingdom ruled by a client king, Herod. So Luke is trying to fix the date within a certain time period and is using what were, in those days, the standard way of marking time. He didn't say in the year 46 or something like that. He he puts it in the time of Caesar Augustus's reign and at the time of a census under Quirinius. Often, and you see Luke actually say this later, um, when you're setting a time in the ancient world, you would say something like, in the third year of Augustus's reign. So there's some ambiguity, and, and I think Luke doesn't exactly know the year that Jesus was born. Because later he does say, in the 15th year of the reign of Caesar Tiberius. And so he, he uses that phraseology later on in the Gospel of Luke. But here at the beginning, he doesn't use that phraseology, so I guess he's trying to be a little bit more ambiguous about the time frame. According to Roman records, Quirinius became the governor in AD 1, though there is also some evidence that he was responsible for governing Syria before he was actually given the title or post of governor. And the Greek in Luke 2 actually says, while Quirinius was governing Syria, not while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. So there is a bit of ambiguity over when Quirinius started governing. Matthew, in his gospel, says of Jesus' birth, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi came from the east, and they arrived in Jerusalem. According to Roman records, also, Herod died in 4 BC, although there is some ambiguity about that as well. But it's a fairly solid date, comparatively. So Jesus was born before 4 BC, if Herod was still alive, and if the 4 BC date for Herod's death is correct. 
In Luke 3, it says that Jesus began his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign, using that phraseology in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. And it says there also that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. So that dating would take us back to about 2 BC for Jesus's birth. But that's after the 4 BC date of Herod's death. So again, things aren't exactly lining up, but these Dates all have a bit of wiggle room in them. Luke does say about 30 years old, so there's some room for stretching that he could be 28 or he could be 32. It's somewhere in that range. So in the end, we don't know exactly what year Jesus was born, but most scholars date it to between 6 BC and 2 BC. And that's kind of weird, right, isn't it? Considering that our whole calendar today reflects the years since Jesus' birth. As of recording this, it is 2020, right? So AD 2020, implying that it's been 2,022 years since Jesus was born. But that's not exactly right. The years before he was born are known as BC, that is before Christ. And the year he was born is the year that it starts AD, which stands for Anno Domine, which means in Latin, the year of our Lord. So if Jesus was born in 2 BC, then Jesus was born two years before Christ, which is kind of funny to me. How did they get that way? Well, in AD 525, a Christian monk named Dionysus the Humble created a calendar based on the Julian calendar, but starting over with year one being the year of Jesus's birth. However, in 525, when he was doing this, Dionysus's calculations were off by a few years, and so he got Jesus's birth off by as many as four or five years. In his defense, it was AD 525, right? Uh, He didn't have access to all the documents that we have today. Anyway, Dionysus' calculations began to take root in the church and were made more widespread by their use by the Venerable Bede in England in the 700s. It sort of settled in to be our current calendar. So when actually was Jesus born? A fairly good bet is 4 BC, but really it could be anywhere between 7 BC and 2 BC. Many of the ancient church fathers seem to point to 2 to 3 BC, so it's somewhere in that range, but we just don't know exactly. There's also no real evidence of the day of the year that he was born on, even though today we celebrate it on December 25th. That's his birthday in our current calendar. It's totally possible that that is the day, but there's nothing in the Bible that gives a sense of the date or even really the season of the year. There are several theories as to why we celebrate it on the 25th, including the possibility that that's the actual date. And and it is a pretty old tradition in the church that we celebrated on the 25th. It might be that the church stole the old Roman holiday of Saturnalia, which was a midwinter celebration about the time of the winter solstice, which today is usually on December 21st. But in the end, we really don't know exactly when Jesus was born or exactly why we celebrate it on the 25th. Despite this ambiguity, It's interesting that all of the gospel writers make reference to other historical events and are really trying hard to settle Jesus's life within some fairly concrete historical events. They include Judean rulers, Roman rulers, emperors, the destruction of the Jewish temple, and even a few astronomical events. They were actively trying to place Jesus's life within the context of world events that their audience would have been familiar with. According to very old church tradition, the oldest of the Gospels is the Gospel of Mark, which might have been written within 20 or 30 years 
of Jesus's death, even possibly even earlier. Or it possibly also could be drawing on some even older sources that were closer to the time of Jesus that we just don't have those original sources anymore. But by the standards of ancient literature, 20 or 30 years is very close to the times when things were actually happening. In most cases, in those days, historians were writing of of events that had happened hundreds of years before them. But all four of the gospel accounts were written within the lifetimes of eyewitnesses. And two of the gospels were written by actual eyewitnesses, Matthew and John. And maybe Mark also was a witness of some of the action as well. Luke is clearly writing from after the fact, at least in terms of writing the gospel, um, but he does become an eyewitness of some of the events in Acts, the sort of follow-up book to Luke, which he also wrote. So the authors of the gospel accounts, in addition to being eyewitnesses of some of the events, they also had access to other eyewitnesses. On top of that, they were writing to an audience who were alive during the events that they were describing. It's a different thing to be writing to an audience and say, AD 300 than it is to be writing to an audience that was alive during the events you're describing. There was a lot of scholarly skepticism in the 1800s and 1900s about the dates and events of the Bible, with many scholars basically jumping to the conclusion that it was all myth and that none of it really happened. There was an overall academic impression that the Bible was mythological, maybe like the Babylonian story of Gilgamesh or the Enuma Elish. But since the 1800s, the sciences of archaeology, history, and textual criticism have accumulated more and more evidence that the Bible, and especially the historical books of the Bible, are relatively accurate historical records. Even hostile academics now have to give grudging acceptance to the historicity of the New Testament and to the reality that there really was a guy named Jesus and that his followers very quickly claimed that he had risen from the dead. My point here is that These things that we call the Gospels are meant to be, they were written to be, historical records and accurate historical records. If you've been part of the church for a while, you can sometimes become so familiar with the texts that you miss out on their purpose. Why were they written? To whom were they written? What point was each author trying to make to his audience? For example, Matthew is writing to an audience of Jews who had become Christians. Luke seems to be writing to Greek believers, as does John. Mark seems to be writing to Romans, perhaps. And it's Mark that starts off by having Jesus say the times fulfilled. As Mark has Jesus say, as his very first words, the time has been fulfilled. What could this mean? Unfortunately, Mark doesn't explain it either. The phrase implies the idea that the world was ready for the Messiah to come. So let's take a look at some ideas that could be part of this. One piece of this, as I mentioned earlier, is that Rome now controlled all of the Mediterranean, all the way around. This did allow for freer, safer travel. In many places, there were Roman roads, which made it easier to travel as well. It was by far the most connected that the ancient world had ever been, or would be for at least a while. After the fall of Rome, things got pretty fractured again for a long while. It's nothing compared to how the world is connected today, but from our modern vantage point, we can lose sight of how hard it was to do something as simple as travel from one country to another. Let's say back in 200 BC, before Rome had conquered everything, you couldn't just go from Jerusalem around to Rome. It would take months and you'd have to go through some pretty dangerous areas and 
cross some hostile borders. You could maybe sail there, but even then you might have to land in some not-friendly ports. During the Roman era, it was much more manageable, though it would still take a long time to get from Jerusalem to Rome. Anyway, part of the fullness of time idea might be that things were pretty well connected, at least comparatively. Another piece of it was the expectations of the Jewish people. In part because of the Roman occupation, the Jews were desperately looking for a Messiah. There were also numerous Jewish prophecies in the Jewish Bible that pointed to the time frame when the Messiah would come, and that was the time frame when Jesus was alive. A well-known example is the prophecy in the book of Daniel that seems to point to a time 483 years after the time of Daniel when the Messiah would come. Daniel mentions a decree by Artaxerxes, which is dated about 458 BC, so adding 483 to that takes us about to the time of Jesus' public ministry, about 30 years after he was born. So the Jews were aware of this, and it fed into their messianic expectations. Many of the Jews were expecting a Messiah that would be a conqueror who would drive out the Romans and set up a new Jewish kingdom, like the kingdom of David or the kingdom of Solomon. But Jesus himself had a different message. He talked about a kingdom, yes, but the kingdom he talked about was the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew called it, or the kingdom of God, as Mark, Luke, John, and some of the epistles call it. I'll talk about that message next episode, but for now, I just want to say that from the beginning, Jesus was trying to set up a different expectation about the kingdom. The Jews were right, in a way, Jesus was coming to set up a new kingdom, but it wasn't the typical earthly kingdom they were expecting, and it didn't do away with Rome, at least not right away. Jesus also tapped into these messianic expectations, even while turning them on their head. Once, when he was asked to read from the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue, he read this passage. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the humble. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And, interestingly enough, he left off the next part of that verse, which says, and the day of vengeance of our God. So he's accepting for himself some of the mission of the Messiah, but he's leaving out the day of vengeance, at least for now. Part of the messianic expectations that the Jews had included freedom of captives and freedom for prisoners, But they were thinking of that in terms of being set free from the Romans. Jesus instead meant people who are captives of sin and darkness, not Jews that were the captives of Romans. It's a different kind of kingdom from the get-go. So the fullness of time includes this idea of a new kingdom, and it's a kingdom that's open to everyone as long as they meet the one standard of it, which is repentance. That is how Matthew introduces Jesus in his gospel and has him start his ministry in in the gospel of Matthew by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Really, you could make the point, and maybe we'll make this point in the next episode, that most, if not all of Jesus's teaching is about the kingdom. And even his death is about the kingdom. We'll talk about that more in the next episode when we look at his life and the message that he actually brought. To sum up this episode, Jesus came. The Messiah came. The new kingdom started when the time was ripe. We might not know all the pieces that went into the idea of the time being the optimal time, but the Bible does make this point several times. Paul makes the point in his letter to the Galatians where he says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then also an heir through God. So to Paul, at least, an important part of this new kingdom coming at this very specific time was that we could be adopted into God's family as children. Next episode, we'll look at the older brother of this new family, the one who was killed for saying that he was the son of God. <music>